Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today, we, were, we are with Danny Arevich, who is going to her second Paralympic Games, but she's going to her second Paralympic Games in six months. So this is, this is, I, Danny, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I don't want to get into it too much, but this is, this is a crazy progression. I mean, this is, so you went to Tokyo as a runner. Mm-hmm. And you had been a runner in college, 5K, 3K. Mm-hmm. You went mm-hmm. to Tokyo as a 400 meter runner, which mm-hmm. for the audience, that is dramatically different in all oh, yeah. phases of <laughs> everything. Build, training, fast twitch, slow twitch, all of these things. So uh-huh. that part is crazy. And then, and then you also concurrently decided that you wanted to go to the, to, to the, to Beijing in Nordic skiing. And when did this all start happening? Because I think I know, but I'd like to hear from you. Like when, when, when did you go, yes, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do that. And you've done it. Yeah. It's kind of crazy to think that I've done it now in a short amount of time. It's only been about three years since I started training. I was working full-time corporate career post-college, thought obviously my athletic career was over and I actually wanted to work in pro sports. So I was working in professional sports in the business side of a national basketball association team, the Utah Jazz. And it was while I was there that I just wasn't feeling, you know, what I thought I should be feeling at the quote, my dream job and doing what I was supposed to do. And so I started looking a little bit into the Paralympics. I'd heard a little bit about it, but not really much and didn't really understand the scope of it and reached out to a family friend and loosely started training for the 400 in 2019, kind of forced into the 400, unfortunately, because uh, for my classification and track, it was only the 100, 200 and 400 for the running events. So if I wanted to do track and field, that was kind of my my only option, I guess. And I'd only run the 400 like once or twice before in a relay of uh, some distance runners doing it kind of as a joke at the end of a meet. And Back in high then, school, or did you run yeah, it in college? In high school. <laughs> okay. So this is good preparation I and mean, it's good progression right there. Okay. Yeah. So it was a totally new territory for me. And from there, I somehow caught the attention of a developmental ski coach from the Para Nordic program. And she invited me to a clinic in late 2019. So I've just been skiing now for about two years and like three or four months um, before Beijing, which is kind of wild because they say that it takes four years to learn how to cross country ski. So it's definitely interesting that I'm already here. So you'd done it like once before as a kid, right? So you were fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, fine. <laughs> and you you slightly undersold the coach who noticed you because she's a Hall of Fame athlete who happens yeah. to share the same disability, just just on the opposite arm, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, I was introduced to Tanya Kari, who's. I believe still the most decorated female winter Paralympian from 12 medals. Yeah. Yeah. She is incredible. And I was introduced to her right after I went to this camp and we were both living in the Salt Lake city, Utah area. And so I had her to thank, to be able to ski with me about once a week uh, right after I started learning and I do accredit a lot of what how now where I am to her and her help and she was the first person that I saw with an arm impairment ski so she was a great help in all of this well I would imagine because so much of being successful in running but even more so in cross-country skiing is being symmetrical right this is <laughs> yeah. I mean there's there's a real balance and a power and you're using two systems, your lower body and your upper body at the same time. So your heart is completely tapped out from the beginning, like a hundred meters into it, but Mm -hmm. being able to see somebody who could do that 
was probably really helpful to be able to say, well, how, how do you maintain that kind of power mm-hmm. from your polls? What was, what, what, what for you? Cause, cause also part of it is she saw something in you. So mm-hmm. how did that relationship end up working out between you and Tanya? So Tanya and I were introduced luckily from the U S para program after I went to this camp and we formed a really great relationship from there. And she has been a mentor, not just in skiing, but seeing what she's done now with her career in working in adaptive sports as well and running this adaptive sports program and really being a strong leader in some of the technology that's coming with adaptive snow sports through the University of Utah. And Tanya has also been able to mentor and help out one of my teammates who started skiing just around the same time as me. And he had just recently lost his hand. And so she was a really big help to him as well. And he just qualified for Beijing. So it's been really exciting. And we unfortunately both moved away from Utah. My teammate and I were, we had met Tanya, but whenever we go back, we try to see her. Where, where are you now? We are up in Bozeman, Montana. That's where the Paranordic program is based every winter. And I spent my last winter up there in the winter of 2020, 2021. And as my time there was wrapping up, I was kind of in a place where I didn't really know what I was going to do for the summer leading into Tokyo and wasn't sure what I was going to do for coaching. But I got a connection with Montana State University and was able to utilize their facilities and one of their coaching staff members. And so I moved up to Bozeman more permanently and trained there for summer running and now back at there for winter. So a lot of the athletes and some of your teammates did both mm-hmm. summer and yeah. winter, and, and but some of them had a bit more experience than <laughs> yeah. you did. They'd, they'd done it before, but hadn't done it with this kind of a compression of time. Mm-hmm. Is is your, can you talk us through like this whole thing? I mean, like from 2019, working mm-hmm. full-time, working what, 50 <laughs> hours a week and yeah. deciding, hey, I'm going to start doing this running thing mm-hmm. and, and I'm going to go from being a long distance middle distance runner like yeah. you know, where, where you're like all just small and skinny to all of a sudden like building I muscle, and muscle power yeah. to be a 400 meter runner how did is your head just completely spinning right now like how how did this all work from an emotional kind of standpoint oh my gosh um Probably there's a little COVID thing too, right? Yeah, with COVID also. I was going to say, don't ask my mother because she was on the uh, receiving end of all the, you know, emotionally devastating crying moments where I felt like I wasn't doing what I should be doing. And I mean, I was definitely like the way I was raised. And when I went to college, it was always like, go to school to get a job to work till you know you're 65 to be able to retire so the fact that I wanted to pursue this athletic dream when I didn't really have any credibility to be able to say like oh yeah this is going to be viable or I couldn't tell my family at the time when I said I was going to quit my full-time job that oh, don't worry, like, I'll have financial opportunities, because I genuinely didn't know. And at the time, it was a huge hit to be able to, I lost like stability and went to just part time little jobs while also then flying across the country trying to go to these track races and gain the experience. And it was really scary for myself, for my family, for a lot of people involved in my life. But it was I think for me at the time, and now I'm happy that this has changed, it was kind of like a, not a, kind of a quarter life crisis, I guess, where I was like, maybe I'll do this for a few years. I'll test myself. It was kind of like a test for myself. Can I qualify for Tokyo in just two years? Like, again, in an event that I haven't really done before, like, how much can I commit and make this a goal? And I thought, honestly, it would probably be a short athletic career. But then when Nordic came into the picture, and seeing, oh yeah, my trajectory, I've been able to qualify for the games, but to be frank, I'm still not going to get to that level that I need to be, to be like at what Tanya was at, or some of my competitors who have been skiing for a lot longer, that's going to take me four to eight years. So ideally, probably the peak of my 
Nordic career will be Milan or wherever the 2030 games will be. And which might it, be that you're coming back to Salt Lake for that, um, then, hopefully. I fingers crossed. I hope so. That'd be so which cool. would be great. Be, be close so the whole cool. loop for you. Oh my gosh, it would be so perfect. But yeah, it's just been crazy to think that like this all kind of started as a fleeting thought when I was not vibing with my job at work at the moment. And now it's turned into a full-blown career where like I'm able to support myself while doing this. I do this full time. I still do work a little bit because I do enjoy that aspect of my life and I want to maintain some of my career progression outside of sport. But at the same time, it's just wild to think like, I'm going to go and do a sport as a job. And I never thought that would be possible, honestly, for someone, for a para-athlete, for myself, especially. I was seeing these, you know, professional athletes from the NBA standpoint and things like that. And I never knew that we could also make money and have careers and support ourselves while doing this. And I think especially some of my friends from growing up and from college have looked at this and just probably thought I was crazy when I first quit my job and was trying this out also because they didn't know much about it and I didn't know much about it. But now they're seeing that I have been able to qualify for the games back to back and I'm receiving some of these sponsorship opportunities. And I think it's proving to them also that I was able to put my mind to something and really charge forward and accomplish it. Make it happen. So your parents, I mean, one of the one of the worries for your parents, right, is that, okay, you're leaving your job, which means that you're leaving getting paid every two weeks, that you are leaving your health insurance, which is kind of a big deal, your 401k, 401k yeah, all, all of these kinds of things, which are the reason that they invested in you to go to college. Exactly. And you've decided, okay, but, but you are, you, you are getting some of those things now as well, right? I mean, are they a little bit more comfortable with your position and your direction? Oh, yes. They've been totally supportive. And when I did take that leap, they, as much as, you know, they had their nerves as well, they said, well, if you need support at the time, like we'll try to support you. So sometimes my parents would meet me at a race and help cover some of the costs of that travel and things like that. So they've been very supportive. And I think now it's kind of, it's still a shocker to me. And I think it especially shocks them that I am able to support myself now. And they're like, we didn't think this would be possible, honestly. Like, not that we didn't believe in you, but we just, they didn't also know the scope of opportunities. And I think we're very lucky in the time that we're in with Paralympics and sponsorship opportunities and particularly sponsors of the USOPC taking more interest in Paralympians. So I definitely entered the sport at a good time when we actually are getting more equal access to these types of things. So, so are you spawn, are you supporting yourself through sponsorship? Is that really how it's going? Yes. And I still do hop on to work about 20 hours a week. And I, I work it now in um, social media and casting. So I and casting. Yes. And so like casting a, shows, casting movies, that kind of stuff. So it's kind of a unique type of casting. A lot of our other agents did work in reality TV and things like that. But our agency focuses on real people casting. And we typically cast for different brands, particularly for their marketing efforts. But instead of finding a model or an actor for the ad or the campaign, we find real users of their product and we get to highlight their story. So it's really like storytelling. And it's really special because I've actually gotten to cast some of my fellow para-athletes in some really cool campaigns. And so it's been exciting to get to see their stories being put on bigger platforms and them also getting financially compensated for sharing their stories. What kind of companies are you working with? This sounds really cool. Yeah, uh, one of, we did some projects this past year actually for Meta, so for Facebook. And so I got to see, yeah, some of the para-athletes get their campaigns posted on Facebook's marketing pages and their community pages, which is really exciting. And you are doing a bit of modeling as well, it sounds like. <laughs> yes, I mean. Not that I'm that should be surprising, to. you know. <laughs> oh, thank you. 
Um, yeah, that's actually something that also came up kind of when I started training. I, again, had no concept of that entire world or anything like that. Again, I was working in business and had no um, scope of what happened in the modeling, acting type of world. But when I started training, I somehow landed myself in a Nike commercial like six months into training for a basketball shoe, oddly enough. Um, okay, and you're going to have to tell us a little bit more about that because how did you find yourself in a Nike commercial? That that doesn't just happen, right? <laughs> yeah, so I had, through actually an adaptive nonprofit, a friend who was a um, employee at Nike who also was an arm amputee and he helped with um, some of the shoe design for some of their products. And they were doing a commercial for Elena Deladon's basketball sneaker. And they were looking for an adaptive athlete who had experience playing basketball. And I played basketball for about 13 years growing up. And I guess somehow my name got tossed into the mix. And before I knew it, I was one minute sitting at home and six hours later on a flight to go film this commercial. And so that was kind of my first experience with big time, like big company, big production. And it was really interesting and unique and exciting to see and to see the commercial actually premiered at halftime of um, the Thanksgiving Day Lions game, I think that year. Um, and so it was really crazy to get to see that. But Modeling has been a really great way, I think, to not only put myself out there more, but hopefully then be able to continue to move the Paralympic and the adaptive sports movement as a whole, because the more opportunities we have to show people with disabilities in campaigns and marketing and things like that, it's just going to inspire the next generation of adaptive athletes. And I just think when I grew up, I didn't really see anyone, you know, who looked particularly different in these types of situations or on TV or in magazines or things like that. So I think it's all again for this bigger idea of trying to grow our movement as a whole. It is in the visibility and the recognizability mm -hmm. and also the, you know, that you're an athlete. You're there mm -hmm. as an athlete. You're not sort of there as, as some token part of mm -hmm. like, you know, part of the furniture or something like that, you know, <laughs> yeah. and it's like, you are there for what you do well. What was the shooting like? Like how many days did it take to do this commercial? When were you on set? How did all this work? That shoot was actually just a one day about, I think it was 10 hour shoot. And um, it was a lot of waiting around honestly and just yeah kind of doing whatever needed to be done and it was really funny the one of the scenes that made it in the final commercial was kind of this last minute thing where they had a group of able-bodied people playing basketball on the court and um going through and just playing over and over again and we were doing our strapping up these shoes that have don't have laces that are really good for adaptive athletes on the sidelines. And myself and one of the other adaptive athletes who were there said, can we go play in the basketball scene? Like we actually can play basketball if you want us to play basketball. <laughs> and they're like, okay, sure. So they let us get in the little pickup game they were doing for film. And we just kind of did it for a few minutes at the end. And it's actually one of the few scenes that got put in was like me passing a basketball and making like a fake move. And so I think it was good that we did speak up and we're able to say like, we can hop in this basketball game if you want. Like we don't have to just sit here on the sidelines. So I think it's really cool. They decided to use that scene. That's actually a really big deal to be able mm -hmm. to kind of talk your way into it and go, Oh no. And <laughs> It, it, it can be surprising. I mean, I, I did some uh, photos. I, I ski Alpine, you know, and did some photos mm -hmm. this past year. We were doing a bunch and then we were doing some action stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and this guy, I think, had no idea. Like he tried to take a photo of me kind of like on the flats. And he's like, oh, yeah, that that, that looks good. And I'm like, I'm going like two miles an hour. I can't make a turn <laughs> like this. isn't. And so he went down and I made a few turns. He's like, oh, that just blew my mind. Like I had no idea. 
And that's what we need to do is like blow people's mind to be like, I had yeah. no idea. And you're like, yeah, like I played basketball. I kind of know yeah. what I'm doing. Are you, are you better at adapting to things than other people? Like, is, is this something that you're just playing really good at? <laughs> I don't know. I want to say that I'm good at adapting to things because obviously Growing up, I had to be in sports at least because I was born missing my left hand and forearm. So it was when I was growing up, I never wanted to feel different than my peers. So I had to figure out a way to do the things they were doing and I wanted to do it better than them. So whether it was, yeah, shooting a basketball with just resting my left arm on the ball or in softball, I would catch the ball and then take off the mitt, put it under my arm in order to throw the ball. So I had to figure out some unique ways to play the sports I did growing up to make sure I could play them in the able-bodied world and try to beat them in the able-bodied world. <laughs> which, but yeah, which what you were practicing with your glove in front of the television or whatever, is this how yeah. you were? <laughs> Just taking it on and off and on and off to make sure that a coach or anything like that could never use that as the excuse or not playing me saying like oh well she's a little bit slower you know than a typical outfielder because she has to take off her mitt so I wanted to make sure no I'm not you can't use that as an excuse to not ever play me and like for basketball my family did invest in a private coach for a while so that I could everyone would always push me to my left side to think they could try to you know, come and make a steal when I was more vulnerable on that side. But we had a private coach to help me try to figure out moves to get around that. So we really did try to adapt. Are you allowed to disclose those moves that you that you figured out? <laughs> or, or is it I all mean, like very secret so that nobody knows when you get on the basketball court? It's not that secret. It's just like some behind the back, a little bit of like a spin underneath, just trying to yeah quickly get around and use some speed, but nothing crazy. Just had to try to get good at those few little things <laughs> to get around a defender. <laughs> well, which is everything though, right? I mean, that sport in general, it's like, okay, if you try to do a move that you've never practiced, most likely it's yeah. not going to work out. But if yeah. you do it a lot, how about in softball, did it help having a guy like Jim Abbott be, having been in the major leagues and actually threw a no hitter? Mm -hmm. And yeah. yeah How did Jim that stuff actually, work? Did that help the coaches? Yeah, Jim Abbott was one of the few people who like I definitely knew of when I was growing up who had um, a arm impairment. Uh, we actually had for a while a hitting coach that we used who was a former major leaguer who I think played against Jim Abbott um a former Red Sox player who was living in town who helped me learn how to bat on the left side so instead of batting even though I have my right hand I would bat on the left side and do backhanded and the way we thought I could be stronger when I'm behind the plate hitting was I couldn't generate the power that maybe someone could with two hands, especially doing the backswing. So we focused on bunts and um, stop hitting. And because I was quick. And so we would practice that a lot. And he had seen that from an athlete before that they had just done it on the opposite, opposite side backhanded. And he thought, saw they had some success slapping it like over the third baseman's head so that's something we tried to really practice <laughs> okay now because you grew up in Boise Idaho right yeah so I'm trying to figure out who this guy was and I think I know who it was he was a left-handed hitter as well right and a first yeah. baseman maybe maybe a first baseman <laughs> so is this Bill Buckner who was helping you out it was Bill Buckner <laughs> Yeah, it was. <laughs> Him and his daughter would help us out. <laughs> that is pretty amazing. I mean, yeah. obviously, he was a, an amazing baseball player. Like, yeah. you know, so you're getting coached from somebody who has a pretty <laughs> decent idea of what this is kind of like you've fallen into a few coaches here where Bill Buckner's <laughs> helping you out, then Tanya's helping you out in Nordic skiing. I know, I'm pretty lucky. <laughs>
<laughs> wow. So I this know, is so funny. so have you always had like kind of bubbly? I mean, so so like actually let me let me go back and just say what what does sparkle mean? I read about sparkle. Is is this something that, that is specific to you or um sparkle? Oh, maybe I don't. Maybe it was just from a. It looked like it was in a in a uh, like it was a philosophy or something from you, but maybe not. It was. Uh, in, I read it in an article. So, so maybe that's yeah. That was the. Uh, <laughs> so maybe not. Okay, we'll we'll move to something else. I thought there might be a sort of treasure trove of of philosophy that was coming out of the idea of sparkle. I don't know. It was Jesse Diggins thing. <laughs> Probably exactly. Well. Did you watch some of that stuff? I watched the 30K, yeah. oh and, my gosh. which was absolutely amazing, but also Unreal. like amazing in the grit and the toughness, just with the wind blowing and the, and it was mm -hmm. so cold and all of that. What do you look at when you see a Jesse Diggins who, mm -hmm. this is actually, she's kind of perfect for you in some ways, right? Because she was a bronze medalist in the sprint. And mm -hmm. then a and then a, a silver medalist in the 30k, right? So mm -hmm. so sprint versus an hour and 20, hour and 30 minutes or whatever it was. Yeah, Jesse's been a really great person to watch because I didn't grow up watching cross-country skiing or biathlon and really didn't know anything about the sport. I've had to take it upon myself the past year and a half, particularly, to take an interest in watching that sport to try to learn things and pick up things from them. And I've really enjoyed watching Jessie because she doesn't necessarily have the most beautiful technique you'll ever see on a cross-country skier, but she manages to do things that people just are cannot do. And like you said, the grit she has, she really knows how to dig deep. And I think it's very evident in her skiing. And we have been lucky enough to get to know her a little bit and get to have some calls with her as a team. And I've gone to speak with her a little bit over social media. And she is just a really incredible mentor, particularly for the cross-country ski community in the United States. And to have someone who's finally in the women's field, like, putting a power stance that the U.S. is not to be messed with in cross-country skiing. I think she's just really progressing the sport as a whole for our country and for women in our country. And watching her, I think, is just terrific. I don't think I've ever seen someone be able to work as hard and embrace the pain as much as she does. So she's definitely someone I like to keep my eye on for inspiration. Are you are you good at that? In the commentary, they kept talking about the pain cave. That she's someone who's in the pain cave and then can sprint well, you know, out mm -hmm. of the pain cave. And and is that something you can relate to on a personal level? I have, but I still don't think I'm able to do it as much as I want to. I've seen these glimpses of myself in various races through running through skiing now where I see that I always think of it almost with negative terminology but like mean and animalistic and nasty and like going to that dark dark place and I've seen moments of that in my skiing I've seen it in my run some of my running races before and I'm still trying to like figure out how to tap into it more often than not. Um, but because I'm still learning to ski, sometimes I have a hard time when I'm in a race, like separating out racing and separating out like, oh, how's my technique? <laughs> Am I keeping it all together and doing what I'm supposed to do from the technical side and what like the coaches want to see, but then also trying to embrace the racing side as well. So I think hopefully, particularly for my ski career, that will come in time the more I learn to ski the less I have to think about those little details and can just be fully racing. Um, but something I think that's really helped me, and I didn't even realize how much it would help me prior to Beijing. I came back from world championships in Lillehammer and I was not, I mean, I was placing how I'm expected to place, which is near the back of the pack for someone who's been skiing for two years while the rest of them grew up on skis. <laughs> 
And because I'm such a competitive person, though, I still am getting down on myself and giving myself a hard time. But I was able to hop into a community race back in Bozeman and then do this big cross-country race in Sun Valley, Idaho, the Boulder Mountain Tour. And even though I was racing like 50-year-old women and 14-year-old kids and just a plethora of people from the communities, it was so fun to just be able to ski and ski head-to-head with some different types of people. And I think it was something that really helped me feel like, oh yeah, I do enjoy this sport. I don't have to be so obsessed with placing always. It's also about enjoyment of racing. And I felt like I got to just race and not have to overthink like how far back am I from the leader and all these little details that go into our competitive races. And while I was still competitive, it was nice to take away all the numbers and all the placements and all the point system and just be able to race. So I think it was a good thing for me to do before Beijing, because again, like Beijing probably won't be my games. I'm still very new. It's going to be a great learning experience and I'm really excited to get to race. And I haven't gotten to race like our field of my classification as a whole ever, because the races that I have gone to last season and this season, only some countries have been to because of COVID. So to have everyone in one place, I think it will be really great competition. And it'll show me like where I need to go in the next four years. What is the community like? The the cross country <laughs> skiing community is it similar to a running community or is it different? Is it unique unto itself? Ooh, I think it's like pretty quirky to be fair. <laughs> it's definitely quirky. It's definitely a way of life, but it does remind me of long distance running communities like some of the triathlon communities I've seen anyone who enjoys an indoor like an endurance sport for fun has a screw loose in their head (laughs) so it's been very unique but I'm really happy that we have been able to in Bozeman partner with an able-bodied club team that also has a community ski trails associated with it and has a community program so it's been really cool to get to be merged not just in the Paris side of it but in the cross-country ski community as a whole and I feel like I've been really welcome into it and I've been able to help out with like some social media for um, an organization that deals with all the cross-country female coaches across the country and gotten to know more about that, more about their lives, and feel a little more immersed in the community. And so to get back to your origin story, because this all emanates from this whole origin, right? So there's 2019, Mm -hmm. like, so Mm -hmm. you became a sprinter, then Mm -hmm. you got into cross-country skiing, and you're doing longer distances. Are you doing some, which events are you going to do on the cross-country side? Because then we're going to get into your third sport. (laughs) Yes. So in Beijing, I'm doing two cross-country races, maybe a relay. We're still waiting to hear on that. So I'll get to do a sprint cross-country and a middle distance. And they'll both be skate since we have the two techniques of classic and skate, which I prefer skate. So I'm not mad (laughs) that they're going to both be skate. Um, but yeah, it'll be really fun. And I think the 10 K is a really good distance for me. So having a 10 K skate at the games, I think will be a good one for me. So the 10 K will be your longer event. How long Mm -hmm. is the sprint event? It will be, I think it's around kilometer to 1.2 kilometer. So much shorter, but, um, depending on how you do, you could ski it up to three to four times with qualification to heats to finals etc so the goal is always to make it as far as you can um but i'm hoping to at least make it to a semis at my first games and be able to get a few more races in through that and so that's just short it's short of a mile how long will mm-hmm. that take you to do how long is this is a sprint i mean granted there's a range mm-hmm. right but yeah but what Depending kind of makes course, sense yeah um, I bet for Beijing, I probably would take people four-ish minutes, five maybe. Yeah. Four-ish, four to five minutes. Okay. So that's, mm-hmm. that's 12 to 15 
miles and you know i mean kind of well maybe a little bit less like like 10 Mm -hmm. to 10 to 13 miles an hour kind of thing that you're going Mm -hmm. along so you're you're moving along Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's so funny like seeing a sprint in track versus a sprint in cross country similar but still so wildly different (laughs) what's so different about it between the two i mean just energy systems or what's different yeah i think energy systems i think it's obviously going to be longer than the sprints you typically do in track. And it definitely requires quite a bit more pacing. And since there can be different terrain, if you're climbing, if you're doing a sharp turn, things like that. Whereas, you know, when I was training for the 400, it's just all out one lap. (laughs) Whereas this, you have to be a little more tactical about it, especially if you know, that you might have more coming up and sometimes they'll be like less than an hour apart. So trying to make sure you can qualify, but maybe preserve just a little and kind of playing that game as well. Well, you're talking about saving a little bit potentially and cross country skiers look like they are able to measure themselves to the finish, to the last (laughs) little bit of energy. I mean, the carnage after mm-hmm. a cross country race is oh, yeah. remarkable where, where there are people sprinting in and someone is lying on the ground, yeah. with just, you know, just heaving with trying to get yeah. oxygen in what, what is that feeling like? And do you know, when you start a 10 K that that is where you're going to end up? And if you do, how do you manage that? Yeah, so that's something I'm still learning with being new is finding the correct pacing for that and finding what tempo is supposed to be right kind of for the distance. And I think that's also one reason Jesse Diggins is so remarkable is when she finishes, you can tell that she's gassed up. Like she has nothing more. And I've heard people say, you know, like, Oh, when cross-country skiers collapse at the finish, it's so dramatic. And it's like, they're not doing it for drama. They genuinely feel that way. (laughs) That is not an act. It is 100% just pure exhaustion. And so, yeah, that's something I'm still definitely playing with, with being new, is finding the tempo, finding the pace to be able to hit that pure exhaustion. I feel like I've managed to hit it, but not at the finish and a little before I then dragged my feet to the end. But um, it's definitely a sport where you have to find a will and a way to empty that tank. Because I've had moments, especially sometimes with sprint days, where I thought maybe, oh, I'll save a little more than I think I need to in case I make a heat. And then I don't make a heat because my time wasn't fast enough from the qualification. And so I'm trying to reframe that in my head of this act like the qualification is your final right now. And then if you do make the heat, then we reevaluate for the next hour. Yeah, but, you'll try to recover in between yeah, as best you can and hope for the best. But you've <laughs> yeah. progressed. You made it to the next one. That mm-hmm. commitment in the start has mm-hmm. to be because I, I know, I mean, I raced wheelchairs as well, right? And there were mm-hmm. definitely times that I'd get to the start and think, why did I think this was a good idea? <laughs> like that, that start is, is sometimes the way you're like, I know I'm going to go through it. At the end, you go, oh, that all made sense. That was good. But at the start, mm-hmm. you think, really? Do mm-hmm. I want to do this? Are you, mm-hmm. do you share that same experience with me? Or are you in this position where you're like, oh, I'm so excited just to lay it out there and, and put everything I have into this and sh- show what I can do? Oh gosh, like with the 400, I was definitely on that mindset of why am I, <laughs> why in the heck would I do this to myself? This is going to suck for a minute and a few seconds. But that's one thing that I definitely know why I'm, better and I prefer longer distance things and I first experienced this when I started running my junior year of high school and I did cross country for the first time and I came from soccer so I was definitely running a lot I just never did it as the only thing so it was kind of a wild concept to me that people did just running as a sport because for every other sport running is a punishment or a part of the sport etc and I 
would get so nervous at the start. And it was the only sport where I would have such intense nerves that it overpowered me, but I couldn't play it off because it wasn't like I could make a pass or do something else. Like it was just me running. And I was the only person to focus on, you know, it was just me. And I was Can I so quote nervous. you on some, because, because didn't you call yeah. running absurd? And that yeah. in other sports, it was a form of punishment. So why would anybody choose a form of punishment? Yeah, it was pretty absurd. <laughs> it was at the time a really hard concept for me. And um, I think, though, that's maybe why I did well at first was because I didn't really overthink it at first. Um, my first few races, because I just didn't know what I was doing. So I just kind of ran and tried to keep up with everyone. But then as I started to care more about it, I would get so incredibly nervous and nerves that I never felt in another sport. And it would almost like debilitate me for the first mile of a 5K. And I would just be panting, not because I was tired yet, but because I was so nervous that my heart was racing and I felt uncomfortable and jittery and all these things. And then after that first mile, it's like I could finally then enter my more flow and just be like, okay we're still here. We're still in this. You can finally relax and now start racing. It's almost like I had that roadblock to get through that first mile. And that's one reason I had a hard time with the 400 was it was just so short. I'd never had, if I was, I was always nervous before the 400 because I knew it was going to hurt. I never had that time to like settle in. It was just over and done so fast. And so that's one thing I like about skiing and some of our length of distances is even if I'm super nervous at the start, and maybe had a bad start or, you know, didn't have the pacing I wanted for my first lap. Like I have more opportunities to make up time, just get into that headspace of being in the race instead of just trying to get through it. So I think, yeah, definitely sometimes when I approach the line, I have my first few minutes or my first lap, I'm a little more like, oh my God, why am I doing this? I'm nervous, all these emotions. And then once I can settle in, then I'm like, okay, we're racing, let's go. <laughs> Is that part of like the love that you've, that you've, that you've gained for running for cross country skiing, the sense of like managing yourself in that moment to be able to perform? Yeah, I think racing sports are a very beautiful thing. And I think it really is the rawest form of sport, in my opinion, like just you versus your competitors or you versus a clock where I love, like, I love ball sports. I love soccer. I love basketball. I love softball. I love them so much, but I just think there is such a different mindset that has to go into racing sports. And again, like you have a team, you have people counting on you, but at the end of the day, it's just you in that race. Like you can't pass it off to someone. I can't say, all right, my, you know, I took my shot and hop in now, <laughs> take over. <laughs> and so it really is, I think, a true test of one's mind. And I don't think I'll ever stop doing an endurance sport now. I want to try more. I want to try my hand at a few different more, a few different types of endurance sports. And I just think that I have seen the best parts of myself while I'm racing. And I want to see more of them. Like we said before, like I want to be able to get to that spot more in more races, more often at a high level. And it'll take time. It'll take practice, but I think I can get there. And I think that racing is what I'm meant to do now. That is quite a statement. Racing <laughs> is what you're meant to do now. <laughs> that is awesome. I mean, this is this is that journey to get to that point, to get to where you saw Jesse Diggins. And, and you talk about, you know, it, it's not this melodrama or whatever, you know, it's not like, oh, look at me. I went so hard and, and now I'm here yeah. sort of making it look like I'm I went, like it was freezing there. Yeah. And, and people had to lift her up. Like there's a good incentive to to get up and go elsewhere when it's that cold. You're not just yeah. laying there for the sense of drama. Mm -hmm. What's your what, what's your other sport? Your your third sport now? 
Um, tied similarly to cross country is biathlon. So cross country skiing and target shooting. How does that one work? How do you like that one, I guess, too? Uh, it's the most fun thing I could ever do and the thing I hate the most. <laughs> it's, it takes an interesting un turn on a racing sport because at the end of the day, it is still a race. And you can shoot perfectly or shoot horribly and you could still win the race and you could still lose the race. At the end of the day, it is still a race. But there is such a number then tied almost at least in your head to your success and when you do reach a certain elite level if you aren't hitting those metrics you're most likely not going to be winning races but there is always you know still potential and it's yeah it's incredibly frustrating <laughs> really frustrating because it's a really easy to have a bad day and it's hard when you're shooting poorly to then go out and want to be able to dive into the pain cave scheme because you almost kind of feel like you've lost hope that there's even an opportunity left. But when I have shot well, that is a really good way to motivate to ski fast. <laughs> well, it's such an interesting sport, biathlon, and we don't see it as much here in the mm -hmm. US. I mean, in, in Europe, it is so popular. But as you said, because it can be somebody goes out and skis well. And, and in a regular race, if they ski well and they're ahead, you might not ever see them again. Mm -hmm. But then they go out and then they don't shoot well. And suddenly you could then leapfrog them and mm -hmm. you're ahead of them. And so there's this there's such a different dynamic to that sport to from any other racing type of sport where you get penalized for missing your shots and you either get a time penalty mm -hmm. or you have to do an additional lap which is mm -hmm. a time penalty and an additional physical pen penalty mm -hmm. this is this is back to your punishment part of it right this is the punishment <laughs> for missing a shot how do you yeah. control yourself because the hardest thing is you go out and you ski hard mm -hmm. and then you get into the range and mm -hmm. you have to go from skiing hard your heart basically almost like jumping out of your body kind of hard and then and then you have to lie down and go and shoot like mm -hmm. how do you how do you manage that in this whole like not having your your head explode kind of thing <laughs> yeah i'm still learning that i feel like since starting biathlon i've probably been the most inconsistent shooter on my team and it is yeah something it's going to take a lot even the best you know still don't know how to do it perfectly well and everyone will always have bad days even the best of the world but the way that most of us think about it is we have to separate the time that we ski and we shoot when we're skiing we're trying not to think about shooting we're trying to think about what are we doing in this very moment you know to again go as fast as we can without killing ourselves necessarily working on the pacing but then when we're in the range trying to be solely focused on not just shooting, but each shot. So I've had a tendency, you know, if I had one or two misses at the beginning, I'd get frustrated and just hurry through the rest. Cause I already kind of was just mentally like, Oh, well we, we're done with this. Blew it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So it's really hard to be able to separate each single shot. So trying to keep in mind, even if I had a miss the last time, slow it down still think of this shot as a whole new shot like it has nothing to do with what just happened or what's about to happen and so it's really mentally difficult we work a lot on almost like meditative breathing while we shoot for different drills we do a lot of holds in position i've done holds long enough to make me cry i'm so uncomfortable with like my back cramping what do you mean as, as a hold what's a hold just holding in our position right before we take a shot and just yeah i get very i get very uncomfortable doing them but they definitely are good for me because again me being a tendency to go fast and hurry through things to be able to have to like force myself to just like sit and stare and hold and so my biggest thing i try to tackle with shooting is definitely slowing down 
but um yeah we work on a lot of breathing drills basically to try to figure out how to go from that high heart rate to something that's manageable to still be able to shoot accurate if someone had you know the few the lucky pretty good biathletes some are able to just shoot well with a higher heart rate so they're able to come into the range and they have the accuracy to they don't have to take as many breaths as us to slow down and they can just fire away and somehow still shoot clean I am not one of those people so I have to figure out how to really try to calm myself down and mentally again just think about each shot as its own and so it's a it's a different type of sport, that's for sure. I recently learned how it started was back in the Scandinavian countries. Um, military would actually cross-country ski, and that's how they would, you know, act as an army. And so they were carrying rifles for the military and cross-country skiing to help get around faster. And it developed into the sport, which I thought was interesting. Yes, our old uh, head of <laughs> head of skiing, Jack Benedict, who who ran the both the alpine and the nordic team <laughs> and had been he he lost both of his legs in vietnam and mm-hmm. and he, his his recommendation was shoot on the range like somebody's shooting at you <laughs> i don't know i don't know that that's the best advice but but when jack gave you advice you always listened to I jack's listen. advice you know <laughs> so it, it seemed like it worked out because i think yeah. i'd be petrified if somebody was shooting at me but <laughs> danny i know you have to get out thank you so much for joining us and sharing the beginning of this awesome crazy <laughs> journey that you're on and we look forward to seeing you in in beijing Thanks. Yeah. A few days off from departure. (laughs) It's all going to happen really soon. And we look Mm -hmm. forward to seeing that. So thank you so much. Uh, Thank you to all of you for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you saw here, please tell your friends, like us, follow us. It helps us grow and helps us reach a lot more people and get some more great stories. So thanks to all of you and look for this in podcast form as well. Thank you so much. (laughs) 